This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kalam Institute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratul Nabawiyah, we, <clears throat> over the last couple of sessions, We've been talking about the boy, the three years of boycott, isolation, that the Prophet ﷺ, his followers, the believers, his family members, and anyone who is willing to defend and support him, that they were all put through. The three years of isolation and boycott. And as I mentioned last time, the scholars of Sirah mentioned that the majority of the historians, majority of the scholars of Sirah of the opinion that the boycott ended in the 10th year of Nubuwa, the 10th year of prophethood. This was basically close to about three years prior to the migration to Medina. So that's when the boycott ended. We also in the last couple of sessions talked about the immediate aftermath of the boycott ending with the Prophet ﷺ having to, and the Muslims, everyone who was boycotted, them having to kind of resettle back into their lives, acclimate themselves back to life in Mecca, and kind of reestablish and resettle their lives. Three years of isolation, of exile, of boycott is a huge deal. And it's not something that can be taken lightly. So they're in an effort to kind of settle back down and reestablish themselves within their community. But what we also talked about was how they were faced with the same opposition. Things pretty much picked up from where they left off. Things picked up from where they left off. The opposition was there, the argumentation, the attacks, the persecution, the, the, the ridicule. Everything pretty much picked up from where it had left off. So in that sense, it was very overwhelming, it was very difficult. And I talked about how specifically one of the resources for the Prophet ﷺ to emotionally deal with this difficulty upon difficulty. First of all, for seven years, for seven years, more prominently from that seven years, four years, the Prophet ﷺ had been facing severe opposition, torture of his followers, assassination attempts on his life, the the exile, or if you will, the migration of many of his followers, nearly a hundred of his followers, had to go and settle somewhere far away, like East Africa, Abyssinia, Habasha. So for four years, the Prophet ﷺ dealt with that. First three years of prophethood were more quiet, more personal, more private. Then for four years, when it was on the public scene, he was dealing with non-stop opposition. After that, then three years of isolation and boycott. Very severe, very traumatic. Extremely traumatic. Only for that three years, four years of persecution, three years of trauma and isolation and exile, only for that to be followed by more persecution. 
It's very, very taxing on a person emotionally. You can imagine how difficult it would be. And so at that point in time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strengthened the Prophet ﷺ, gave him direction, gave him tranquility, peace, and calmness through the Qur'an and the Book of Allah. And the Prophet ﷺ was able to lean on his relationship with Allah, be able to find guidance through the revelation, the divine revelation, Al-Wahi. And the Prophet ﷺ was... Slowly, day by day, taking one day, and one day at a time, navigating through the adversity and the difficulties of the city of Mecca. Now, at this point in time, one of the things we also talked about was, things were so harsh and so many people were wearing down, that amazing people, strong individuals, like Abu Bakr anhu was even contemplating migration and had left Mecca only to be brought back. But one of the interesting twists, you know that much difficulty and adversity, it comes with some blessings. One of the blessings that came was, like we talked about, the protest to end the boycott was actually led by non-Muslims. And so non-Muslims, many of them started to become very sympathetic, maybe not towards the cause, but at least, toward, at least towards the believers. And their suffering. They, they started to feel like they had definitely crossed the line. It had crossed a threshold, which should not be crossed. And so we saw in the previous session, we talked about how many different believers were receiving protection from non-Muslim prominent members of the Meccan community. So we reached a point at this time where, again Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues to strengthen the resolve of the Prophet ﷺ, and provide the Prophet ﷺ with, with wins. And let me, let me explain what I, what I mean by that. The suffering was no, by no means was it done, was it over. What we're going to be talking about in the next few coming sessions is, on a personal level, at a human level, emotionally, the most difficult and trying time of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and that is a year of grief and sorrow, where he lost his uncle, he lost his wife, then he journeys to Ta'if and is stoned and mocked and ridiculed, and, and, and uh, comes back beaten and bruised, only to be prevented re-entry back into the city of Mecca, some very difficult circumstances are about to come his way. But we have to also understand, and Allah acknowledges this fact, in the Qur'an, by consoling the Prophet ﷺ, by telling the Prophet ﷺ, لَعَلَّكَ بَاخِعٌ نَفْسَكَ You will destroy yourself, you gotta ease up a little bit. That, it's a human reality, when you're going through difficulty, even though that difficulty is building towards something, you need, you need wins along the way. You need certain, you need some relief along the way. You need to be able to just have something to hang your hat on along the way. And that's just a human need. Like if we're building a huge project, if we're building a, a, a building, a masjid, a community center, and it's a huge long project, it's gonna take a long time. Maybe it'll take five years and five million dollars. But along the way, you have to be able to provide some type of small wins, moments, of celebration to the community, to the people investing into it. Otherwise, people will become fatigued over time. They'll become exhausted. They'll lose sight of the objective and the goal. You'll just wear them out. And so what ends up happening when we finish the parking lot or the foundation, then a big event and everyone comes, sees the progress and everyone celebrates. 
Then maybe the structure starts to go up and we have another event and people come in and they walk and they tour and they see it. You know, and, and then maybe uh, the shell is done. So what do we decide? We're going to pray a salat al-Jumu'ah inside of the shell, the, the unfinished structure. And everybody comes and prays Jumu'ah and it's a huge like moment for everyone. And what that does is that gives them the emotional fortitude. It sustains them, it provides them the motivation that they need to keep going. See this through. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acknowledged that in Surah Yasin. And Surah Yasin was revealed shortly after this moment, but it talks about a reality. And that reality that Allah talks about is, لَقَدْ حَقَّ الْقَوْلُ عَلَىٰ أَكْثَرِهِمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ Allah tells the Prophet ﷺ that Allah's the decision's been made for a lot of these people, that they will not believe. But then Allah tells the Prophet ﷺ after that dialogue, after that elaborating on that and explaining that, Allah does, does tell the Prophet ﷺ, إِنَّمَا تُنْذِرُ مَنِ اتَّبَعَ الذِّكْرَ وَخَشِيَ الرَّحْمَنَ بِالْغَيْبِ فَبَشِّرْهُ بِمَغْفِرَةً وَأَجْرٍ كَرِيمٍ Allah does tell the Prophet ﷺ, however, you are there to warn people who will follow the reminder and will begin to fear God even when nobody else is there and congratulate those people with forgiveness and a very noble reward. Meaning what Allah is telling the Prophet ﷺ, most of these people, they're not gonna believe. They're not gonna listen. But there will be people, there will be individuals who will believe and who will listen, and that will be your inspiration, that will be your motivation, that is what will keep you going at the end of the day. That's a human reality. And this is Allah, listen very carefully so nobody misunderstands. Because the Anbiya alayhimu salatu wasalam are ma'asumun. The Anbiya alayhimu salatu wasalam, as far as we're concerned, they're protected by Allah, and we aren't capable of finding any shortcoming or faults with them. We don't. We're not. And that's part of our aqidah, that's part of what we believe. But at the same time, we have to understand that the tarbiyah of the prophets, the spiritual development of the prophets is done by Allah directly. Done by Allah, not any other human being, but done by Allah directly. Divinely they are trained. They are divinely trained and developed. And so part of that divine training for the anbiya, for the prophets, is recognizing, acknowledging this fact, that look, you have a task to do, you have a job to do. And you keep doing your task, and you keep doing your job, and oh, by the way, it's gonna be pretty difficult along the way. However, at the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala divinely is telling the Prophet ﷺ the fact, and thereby teaching us this lesson, that even a Prophet and a Rasul, a Nabi, along the way, he needs these small little victories along the way, on the way to the eventual ultimate goal. Because of the human reality. The Islam of Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu anhu. The Islam of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. These were very necessary. For the believers it was absolutely necessary, but even for the Prophet He's asking Allah. And Allah is providing this answer. And providing this response and this spiritual sustenance, divinely, directly. And so this is very important to identify and recognize. And one of the lessons that we learn from this and we take from this, is on our level now, as a community, where none of us are directly divinely trained or inspired, I mean we do take inspiration and training and development from the divine source, which is the Qur'an, but we are not directly divinely connected. No divine revelation. 
So many times we, as a community, play that role for one another. We will be responsible, the leadership of the community, the scholarship of the community, will be responsible for the continued spiritual development of the individuals in the community at varying levels. And one of the things, regardless of the level that we're dealing with, one of the things we have to remember, especially at the higher levels, because at that point in time, you can begin to take things for granted. That we have to keep in mind the fact that spiritual fatigue and exhaustion is a reality. This superficial rhetoric of, oh brother, if you were doing it for Allah, then you would never you know, be burned out. Oh brother, if you were sincere, sister, if you were sincere, this wouldn't be a problem. This, 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 this is not, this is not, forget about this being any type of spiritual discourse. This is spiritual blackmail of people. And it's unjustified. And it's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's contradictory to what the Quran is telling us. What the life of the Prophet ﷺ is showing us. But we need to be able to provide those small victories, those markers along the way. It's very important for the continued spiritual development of anyone and everyone. And so one of the very interesting incidents here, before we actually delve into the next major phase of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, is they've just come out of three years of isolation. Three years of trauma. Only to be faced, to be dealing with more difficulty and adversity. On the other end of this three years. So now what ends up happening? So there's a very interesting incident that I might have mentioned before, I can't really recall, but I'd like to mention it here in more detail, kind of in the context and in the flow. And this is the actual historical placement of this particular incident in the 10th year of Nubuwa of prophethood. There was a man by the name of Tufayl, who was from the tribe of Dos. Now, Tufayl bin Amr al-Dawsi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he was a leader of his people, he was a leader of his tribe. And one of the things that we find about him in some of the more extended narrations, the more detailed accounts of this incident, is that Tufayl was also considered a great intellectual of his people. He was considered a very intelligent man. He was a leader of his people, but he was also considered a genius. He was a very smart man. And in fact, he was kind of, he was considered a source of pride for his people. And the Quraysh recognized his status amongst his people. So the narration actually mentions that when he came to Mecca, فَجْتَمَعَ بِهِ أَشْرَافُ Quraysh, That all the leadership of Quraysh, they gathered together to welcome him to Mecca. He received a welcoming party at the, you know, at the walls of the city with the leadership. And so that obviously shows his status. And when they welcomed him, at the same time they kind of, part of the purpose was to make him aware of the situation in Mecca. That look, one of our, one of our own, is basically saying, this is this. He says he's a prophet, there's one God, he receives divine revelation, he's got the true religion, etc., etc., etc. 
And a lot of our poor and our slaves and a few people are basically following him and they joined up with him. And there's been a lot of, you know, back and forth. Unfortunately, there's been some brutality and things like that. But that's basically the situation that we got. So first of all, we don't want you to think that we're not on top of our game. But we're just trying to handle this the best way that we can. The other thing was, وَحَذَّرُوهُ مِن رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ They also wanted to warn him about the Prophet ﷺ because they recognized the potential disaster here. Tufail is a leader of his people. He's a genius. His, his intelligence is, uh, of, has a great reputation. If he ends up falling prey to Muhammad's you know, rhetoric or whatever he has to offer, then we're gonna have a tough time explaining this to the people. So they warned him. And in fact, he says himself in the, in the, in the narration where he recounts the incident, he says, وَنَهَوْهُ أَنْ يَجْتَمِعَ بِهِ أَوْ يَسْمَعُ كَلَامَهُ أَوْ يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَهُ That they made him swear. They forbade him from meeting with the Prophet ﷺ or even listening to what he had to say. فَقَالَ فَوَاللَّهِ مَا زَالُوا بِي حَتَّى أَجْمَعْتُ عَلَىٰ أَلَّا أَسْمَعَ مِنْهُ شَيْئًا وَلَا أُكَلِّمَهُ He said that they would not let me go until I swore to them. I took a sacred oath to them that I would not meet with him and I would not listen to him. حَتَّى حَشَوْتُ أُذُنَيَّ حِينَ خَدَوْتُ إِلَى الْمَسْجِدِ كُرْسُفًا He says so much so that they scared me so badly and they were so adamant and insistent that basically the next morning when I decided to go to the Haram, the Baytullah, because they, it was still a place you would visit, it had some reverence and some, some level of sacredness for them, that he said, I stuffed my ears with cotton before I left. That's how bad it was. And so he says, I go there and I'm just minding my own business, I'm doing my own thing. فَإِذَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ قَائِمٌ يُصَلِّ عِنْدَ الْكَعْبَةِ I saw the Prophet ﷺ standing praying near the Kaaba, And I was intrigued. Couldn't lie. I was intrigued. And a man of intelligence. So he said, you know, my natural mode was to investigate. So he says, فَقُمْتُ مِنْهُ قَرِيبًا And so I stood close to him. But... He says that I, I had kind of some trouble listening to him, so I kind of came a little bit closer, a little bit closer, until I was able to hear a little bit of what he said. فَسَمِعَتُ كَلَامًا حَسَنًا And I heard some very beautiful things that he was reading and reciting. The Qur'an. So he says, فَقُلْتُ فِي نَفْسِي He said, I said to myself that, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And... He, he, he uses very strong language. He says, you know, may, may, why didn't your mother disown you? Which basically is a way of saying, like, what's wrong with you? He says, Wallahi inni la rajulun labibun sha'irun. He says, I am an extremely intelligent man who is very well acquainted with poetry and literature and eloquence. You know, he's very confident of his abilities. He says, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a pretty smart guy. You know, I did really, I did great on my SATs. I'm a really smart guy. So, what's the problem? He says, مَا يَغْفَى عَلَيَّ الْحَسَنُ مِنَ الْقَبِيحِ 
He says, I can tell the difference between good and bad. Maybe some of these simple-minded folks in Mecca, these, these, these illiterate people, maybe some of them can, but come on. I, I can tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong. He says, فَمَا يَمْنَعُنِي أَنْ أَسْمَعَ مِنْ هَذَا رَجُلْ مَا يَقُولُ So what's preventing me from listening to what he has to say? Objectively, very objectively, for me to listen and analyze what he has to say. So he says, فَإِنْ كَانَ الَّذِي يَأْتِ بِهِ حَسَنًا قَبِلْتُهُ If in fact, in reality, what he has to say is really remarkable, I will accept it. وَإِنْ كَانَ قَبِيحًا تَرَكْتُهُ And if it's reprehensible, I'll walk away from it. I mean, what do I have to lose? I have nothing to lose here. So he says, I stayed until the Prophet ﷺ left. And I followed him. Until he went home. And I basically... He says something very interesting. He says, حَتَّى إِذَا دَخَلَ بَيْتَهُ دَخَلْتُ عَلَيْهِ Which can be interpreted both ways. That when he went home, then he went and kind of knocked on his door and he came out and he's like, yes, can I help you? But it also, the language makes it seem like when the Prophet ﷺ went into his home, he basically kind of like, you know how you stick your foot out and kind of catch the door before it closes? You know what I'm talking about? Like a door that, that that's automatic, like kind of shuts me, you kind of stick your foot out and catch the door for it closes. He, he, the language expresses, and this is a very eloquent and educated man, it makes it seem like he kind of did that. He kind of like, kind of jumped in real quick. And must have caught the Prophet ﷺ off guard. He said, I said, Ya Muhammad, إِنَّ قَوْمَكَ قَالُوا لِي كَذَا وَكَذَا So he says, I said, hey, listen, Muhammad, Listen, no, no reason to be alarmed or startled. But your people have been saying this and this and this and this to me. This is what your people got to say about you. And he's, he continues to explain to them, فَوَاللَّهِ مَا بَرِحُوا يُخَوِّفُونَنِي أَمْرَكَ He says that they kept on scaring me and, and, and just inciting fear within me of what you are up to. He says, so much so that I stuffed cotton in my ears. So I could not hear what you had to say. And then I did listen to, I decided to give you a fair shake. And I started to listen to what you were reading. فَسَمِعْتُ قَوْلًا حَسَنًا And I heard something very beautiful. فَأَعْرِضَ عَلَيَّ أَمْرَكَ He says, so now I, I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm asking you to, I'm requesting you to, to just make your presentation to me. I'm an educated, civilized man. That's how I roll. So please, present your argument. So the Prophet, he says, فَعَرَضَ عَلَيَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمَ الْإِسْلَامِ The Prophet ﷺ presented Islam to me. And again, a little bit of a side note, how did he present Islam? وَتَلَا عَلَيَّ الْقُرْآنِ He recited the Qur'an, the book of Allah to me. He recited the Qur'an, the book of Allah. I've said this probably about two dozen times in the course of these Sirah lectures, and it gets to the point where it kind of, it, it becomes very redundant and repetitive. But the Sirah of the Prophet ﷺ mentions it so explicitly over and over again that it can't be ignored. That we have to understand that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, you know how, you know how eloquent the Prophet ﷺ was? You know how eloquent he was? The Prophet ﷺ was so eloquent, so eloquent, that, you know, he says, it's a gift from Allah, أُوتِيتُ بِجَوَامِعِ الْكَلِمِ 
There's a whole collection. I actually taught it to the students. There's a whole collection of hadith. Arba'una hadith. And there's a f- collection of 40 hadith that Mullah Ali Qari rahimahullah has compiled amongst the hundreds of scholars who have compiled similar collections. But there's one collection in which he has compiled all, uh, 40 ahadith which illustrate just the gift of the Prophet ﷺ to be able to say a lot in very little. The majority of the ahadith in this 40 hadith collection are two maximum three word ahadith. And literally, ask them if I'm exaggerating, it takes almost an hour to just really basically be able to explain the meaning of the hadith. Two words. Two words. Al-mustasharu mu'tamanun. If you want to make sense of that, at the very least you need an hour. And that's me. I don't even know what I'm talking about. A real scholar of hadith would probably talk for days and days and days and days. So that's the gift of the Prophet That's how awesome he is. Alright, how eloquent he is. How powerful he is in his speech. You want to know the eloquence? Just a, just a pure, just a poetic ability. Naturally, the Prophet has. The Qur'an tells us, وَمَا عَلَّمْنَاهُ الشِّعْرَ وَمَا يَنْبَغِي Allah says we did not teach him poetry because it was not appropriate for him because he is the vessel and the medium of divine revelation. So to not create any doubt about what is divine revelation versus what is his poetry, Allah sealed the deal and said that we did not teach him poetry, it's not appropriate for him. So much so that كَانَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ The Prophet didn't even like to sit down, construct like a dua and make it rhyme. He didn't like doing that. He didn't like, you know, just, just that, that, um, um, just sitting down and, um, overdoing it. Overdoing things in terms of making things rhyme and things like that. So he did not sit down and rhyme things and construct things like, you know, like a poet will sit down and write a poem and go back and fix some things and go back and fix some things and it'll take him like six months to write a poem. The Prophet didn't do that. He was, in fact, he was, he just didn't, he, he himself just didn't even like it at all. He didn't forbid poetry, it's something that's even recommended for believers, but he himself, no. But you know how still awesome he was when he spoke? The last hadith of Sahih Bukhari, the concluding narration of Sahih Bukhari, just listen to it. And by the way, this is not the Prophet ﷺ constructing this, writing this. This is him just talking to the Sahaba, giving them advice, nasiha. He's giving them advice. He says, "Kalimatani, khafifatani ala lisani, thaqilatani fil mizani, habibatani ila rahmani." Subhanallah wa bihamdihi Subhanallah al-Azim. You even hear how beautiful the words are. Kalimatan, khafifatan ala lisan, thaqilatan fil mizan, habibatan ila rahman. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi Subhanallah al-Azim. Two words, very light on the tongue, very heavy in the scale of deeds. And very beloved to Ar-Rahman. Subhanallah wa bihamdi, subhanallah al-Azim. You see how beautiful? So, um, uh, the, I know I'm kind of drawing the point down, I'm trying to construct an argument. My argument here is, this is a man, this is the most eloquent human being that ever walked the face of this earth. This is the most eloquent, the most afsah, ablagh man, human being, that ever walked the face of the earth. And when he gives da'wah, what does he do? 
Tufail al-Dawsi radiallahu ta'ala anhu, like dozens before him that we've covered in the seerah, is saying about the Prophet ﷺ, فَعَرَضَ عَلَيَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمَ الْإِسْلَامِ He presented Islam to me. And how did he go about in presenting Islam to me? وَتَلَا عَلَيَّ الْقُرْآنِ He recited the book of Allah to me. He recited the book of Allah to me. So we have to really, really ask ourselves, Dawah is a responsibility, it's an obligation, it's a blessing, it's a huge source of reward and blessing, no doubt. But we also have to be very cognizant of our ability to do da'wah in the prophetic method. According to the prophetic you know, methodology. It has to be done. Da'wah, this one, one of my teachers used to say, it's not just inviting to Allah, it's inviting to Allah as the Prophet invited to Allah. That's the, that's the nahjun nubuwa. It has to be done according to nahjun nubuwa. The prophetic methodology. And part of that prophetic methodology is Qur'an. Our da'wah has to be very Qur'an-centric. And so I'm not saying that we stop all efforts of da'wah and all of a sudden just, just everybody enroll into a Qur'an school. But the idea is we have to continue to educate, to learn, to continue our development in terms of our knowledge of the Qur'an. And of course, the Prophet ﷺ is addressing people, specifically here to fail, somebody that when the Qur'an is recited to, he understands it. Because he is an intelligent man, he is an ancient, uh, 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 an Arab from 1400 years ago, and he is a poet. So he comprehends what the Qur'an is saying. Our audience might not comprehend. So that just means we have a, even a greater responsibility. Of not just reciting the Qur'an, not just even translating the Qur'an, but being able to help them understand what the Qur'an is communicating and saying. And so that's a very important point here. Nevertheless, to kind of get back to what we were talking about. So this intelligent man to fade now comes to the Prophet ﷺ and says, lay it on me, come on. I'll, I'll, uh, come on, just, just, you present what you have to, what you have to say, and we'll see. The Prophet ﷺ recites the Qur'an to him and presents a message to him. He says, فَلَا وَاللَّهِ مَا سَمِعَتُ قَوْلًا قَطُّ أَحْسَنَ مِنْهُ وَلَا أَمْرًا أَعْدَلَ مِنْهُ He says, I swear to God, they were completely wrong, I swear by Allah, I never heard anything more beautiful and excellent than what He said to me that day, nor did I ever hear anything that was more balanced. Very interesting choice of words. Because see, this is an intelligent man. This is more than intelligent, this is a man of intelligence. This is, this is a, an educated, inte- this is an intellectual, an academic. And he said something very profound. He's not just emotionally, he is emotionally affected by the Qur'an, but he's not just speaking based off of just his emotional experience. He says, I never heard anything more balanced than the Qur'an. It evoked powerful emotions. But it was intellectually sound and pure. It was very balanced. And he basically says, فَأَسْلَمْتُ وَشَهِدْتُ شَهَادَةَ الْحَقِّ He says that, I accepted Islam and I gave my testimony of faith of the truth. And he goes on to say that I said, Ya Nabi Allah, O Messenger of Allah, inni imru'un muta'un fi qawmi. He says, I am a man who is listened to amongst his people. My people, they accept what I have to say. So he says, I will go back and I will invite them towards Islam. 
There's a very interesting part of the story. The scholars of hadith and seerah mentioned that this particular part of the story is mursal. This part of the story, there is some discussion about its authenticity and it connecting back to uh, the Prophet ﷺ or Tufail radiallahu anhu. And that is, he says, فَدْعُ اللَّهَ أَنْ يَجْعَلَ لِي آيَةً تَكُونُ لِي عَوْنًا عَلَيْهِمْ فِيمَا أَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ He says, I make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for me some type of a miraculous sign that will help me in inviting my people towards Allah, towards Islam. So he says the Prophet ﷺ made dua, Allahumma ij'al lahu ayatan. He said, Oh Allah, make a sign for him. Make a sign for him. And he says that, at that time, I left towards my people, and all of a sudden, right here on my forehead, between my eyes, on my forehead, there was like a light that was shining on my forehead. And he says, I made dua again at that time saying, Oh Allah, not in my face. Don't put that sign, that miraculous sign on my face. Because if it's on my face, my people will think that there's something bizarre or strange or, you know, something going on with me. They'll be weirded out. It's a little too much for them. So he said, I had like a walking stick, a staff, and people would travel with that. So he said that the top of my walking stick, my staff, began to glow with light, with nur. Inexplicably. And so that was kind of the sign that I had miraculously. Nevertheless, he says he got back home. And he said that the first person I met was my father. And my father came to greet me and meet me. And I said, and see, Tufail, one thing very interesting about the story of Tufail, and again, we're talking about a sahabi radiallahu anhu, a companion of the Prophet ﷺ, may Allah be pleased with him. So we speak respectfully, but just kind of stating what he says about himself in the narration. Because he was an, edu- he was an intellectual and academic, he was a little bit, he was a little bit direct and straightforward, which even came off a little bit harsh. And he says, my people, they worshiped an idol. There was an idol that they revered, and they worshipped this idol. Now, already as it was, I didn't, I didn't really jive with it. He was an intelligent, educated man. So he says, as it was, I didn't really, it didn't sit well with me. But then on top of that, now that I had accepted Islam, now I just had like little to no tolerance for this. So he says, when my father came to meet me, he says, um, he says, وَكَانَ شَيْخًا كَبِيرًا He was a very elderly man. فَقُلْتُ إِلَيْكَ عَنِّي يَا أَبَتِي Basically, to kind of translate a little bit more politely, because he does call him يَا أَبَتِي He's basically saying, like, look, you and I are very different now, Father. You and I are very different. Literally, it can also be kind of translated as like, hey, listen, get away from me. You and I have nothing to do with each other. But to put it into context, because he is calling Ya Abati, my beloved father, he's basically saying, you and I are on different ends of the spectrum now. You and I have a very different understanding of things now, father. His father said, he says, فَلَسْتُ مِنْكَ وَلَسْتَ مِنِّي He says, I don't share the same views as you, and you don't share the same views as me. So his father said, وَلِمَ يَا بُنَيَّا He says, why my son? My beloved son, we've, we've always been close. What's wrong now? He says, أَسْلَمْتُ وَتَعْبَتُ وَتَابَعْتُ دِينَ مُحَمَّدٍ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ 
He says, I have accepted Islam and followed the religion, the way of life taught by Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa He said, oh my dear beloved son, the father says, Ay bunaya, dini dinuka. He says, my religion is your religion. I trust you. And I know that you want what's best for me. And, I, and I, I've raised you to be a good man, to be intelligent, educated man. So I'm in agreement with you. So he says, فَذْهَبْ فَاخْتَسِلْ وَطَهَرْ ثِيَابَكَ He says that go, take a shower, cleanse yourself and clean your clothes. ثُمَّ أَتِنِي حَتَّى أُعَلِّمَكَ مِمَّا عُلِّمْتُ So that then come back to me so I can teach you what I've learned, what I've been taught. He says, my father did accordingly. I, he came back, I told him about Islam, he accepted Islam. He says, then my wife came to me. And he says, I told her the same thing. I said, hey, listen woman, me and you, we don't, we're, we, don't, we don't see eye to eye anymore. She said, why is that? That's shocking. And he says again, he says that the difference between me and you, فَرَّقَ بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَكِ islam he says that the difference is Islam. I follow the religion of Muhammad wasallam. He says, my wife says, my religion is your religion. He says, I told her the same thing. That go and cleanse yourself, purify yourself. And specifically, he mentions one thing. He says, Dushira was the idol that the people of those used to worship. And the women had a responsibility of going and offering devotions to the idol. I specifically told her, go and basically absolve yourself from any type of, you know, engagement that you have with the idol or the temple or whatever the case may be. Go and just completely, you know, hands off. You're done with that. So he says, she did accordingly. She came to me. I told her about Islam. She accepted Islam. He says, then now my wife and my husband, my, my father, my wife and my father are with me now. Three people. Me, my wife, my father, and I went to the rest of my people. And I gave them the message, and they said no. They weren't on board. So he says, I go back to Mecca. I reach back to Mecca, and I meet the Prophet ﷺ, and I tell him. And there's a couple of different narrations here, very interesting. In some narrations, he says, إِنَّهُ قَدْ غَلَبَنِي عَلَى دَوْسَ الزِّنَا He says that, they, instead of me, fornication is something they were... I basically was beat by fornication when it came to the people of those. That they care, they care more about their decadent lifestyle. In another narration, he says, غَلَبَتْ عَلَيْهُمُ الزِّنَا وَالْخَمْرِ He says that alcohol and fornication, they're obsessed with it. In one narration, he says, إِنَّ دَوْسًا قَدَ عَصَتْ وَأَبَتْ he said that the tribe of those has disbelieved and has rejected the faith and has, is leading a very sinful life. So he has a very harsh analysis of his people. And then based off of that, the different narrations, he says they, they, they prefer their decadent lifestyle, they're obsessed with alcohol and fornication, they rejected the faith, they're very sinful people. Sounds like a lot of times what we see in people today. Our analysis of people. And then based off of that analysis, he says to the Prophet ﷺ, فَدْعُ اللَّهَ عَلَيْهِمْ O Messenger of Allah, make dua upon them. 
what, which is basically the Arabic expression for, make dua, Allah destroys these people. Pray against these people. Pray for the destruction of these people. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum even say that the Prophet ﷺ raised his hands to make dua. And some of the narrations actually say that the Sahaba who were there said, وَخِفْنَا عَلَىٰ دَوْسٍ That we were afraid for the people of Dos. When somebody requests the Prophet ﷺ to make dua against the people, to pray for the destruction of people. And the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah ﷺ raises his hands for that dua. He said, we were very worried. We were, we were terrified for the sake of these people. He says, but when the Prophet ﷺ opened his mouth, he parted his lips. The words that came out from his blessed mouth were, Allahumma hadi dawsan. He said, oh Allah, guide the people of those. Bless the people of those with guidance. And then he says, he told me, Irji' ila qawmika fad'uhum warfuq bihim. He says, now you go back to your people. And you know, a man like Tufail could be saying, I already did that. Fad'uhum, ay fad'uhum ila Allah, ila al-Islam. Invite them to Allah. Which again, a man in Tufail's position can say, check. Already tried that. But then the Prophet gave him the third instruction. He said, Warfuq bihim. Be very gentle. Be very kind. Be very gentle and kind with them. Be compassionate with them. Be gentle with them. Serve them. Give them time. Nurture their faith and their iman. So he says, I went back according to the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ. I tried my best to follow the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ. And you can imagine, somebody, you know a lot of times people say, oh, it doesn't come naturally to me, you know. Just, just, I'm just not built that way. Tufail wasn't built that way. He's an intellectual, he's an academic leader of his people, a little straightforward and harsh, if you will, by nature, just kind of says it. But even him, the Prophet is not saying, oh, you know what, you're excused. It's not your disposition, you don't have to worry. No, you be gentle with them. And he said, I had to try very hard. But I had to implement the instruction of the Prophet I mean, be gentle with my people. Again, what do we go back to? Invite to Allah according to the Messenger of Allah. Invite to Allah on the methodology of the Messenger of Allah. If Allah is telling us, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ If Allah is telling us, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِتُمْ حَرِيسٌ عَلَيْكُمْ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَؤُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that the Prophet was merciful, was gentle, was kind, was benevolent, was concerned, was personally, emotionally invested into the well-being of his people, then that's what the tone of our da'wah needs to be. And so he says, I went back and that's what I did. And he says, I stayed. He says this because it's very important. That again, sometimes we're looking for just, you know, an immediate turnover. But we have to understand, we're not selling used cars. I gotta flip it. We're not selling used cars. This is iman. 
This is Islam. This is success in this life and the next. It's a change of lifestyle. It's a relationship with Allah. It might take some time. And we got to be willing to invest in for the long haul. And so he says, فَلَمْ أَزَلْ بِأَرْضِ دَوْسٍ أَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَى الْإِسْلَامِ He says, I continue to stay in those and invite my people to Islam. حَتَّى هَاجَرَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ Until the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم migrated to the city of Medina. وَمَضَى بَدْرٌ وَأُحُدٌ وَالْخَنْدَقِ And he says, not only did he migrate to Medina, but two years passed, and then the battle of Badr happened, another year passed, and the battle of Uhud happened, another two years passed, and the battle of the trench happened. He says, ثُمَّ قَدِمْتُ عَلَى رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ بِمَنْ أَسْلَمَ مَعِيَ مِنْ قَوْمِ وَرَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ بِخَيْبَرٍ He says, then after all of that, I finally went to go join with the Prophet ﷺ until when he was, I reached the Prophet ﷺ and he was at the place of Khaybar, the battle of Khaybar. So this is basically almost five, uh, five and a half years almost six years into the Medinan era. This is five to six years into the Medinan era, the Medinan period. What the, where does that put his Islam? Three years in Mecca, another five and a half years in Medina. This is eight years. So he's been living amongst his people, preaching and teaching to his people for eight years. This is the same guy who went home Basically, in two days, returned back saying, that's it, they're done, they're not gonna believe, just make dua Allah destroys them, it's just pointless. Let's just cut our losses. Me, my dad, my pops, my wife, we're good to go, you got three, hey, you can't win them all, you win some, you lose some, just let's just wipe it out. We're good to go. The same guy goes back and says, I stayed with my people for over eight years, working, teaching, preaching, serving, holding their hand, walking them along, showing them the way, baby steps. Can you imagine for an academic, for an intellectual, how difficult that must have been? All different different demographics, different segments of society. It's like taking a university professor, like somebody who teaches you know, uh, graduate students of the Arabic language, and making him teach Al-Qa'idah Nuraniya. Like making him teach Rani Qaida, Alif Ba Ta Thajim. He'd either, he'd kill one of the kids probably. Can, can, you, can you imagine what would happen? Somebody who's like a world renowned, world class Qari of the Quran. Ashara Qira'at. You know, he recites all 10 Qira'at in one sitting. And then having to correct, like, you know, Joshmos Tajweed. He, he, his brain would melt. He'd probably have a seizure by the time they were done with Surah Al-Fatiha. So imagine how difficult this was. But it doesn't change the fact that this is da'wah. This is da'wah. Eight years, he invested into his people. And at the end of eight years, what does he say? He says, ثُمَّ قَدِمْتُ I'll repeat, ثُمَّ قَدِمْتُ عَلَى رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ بِمَنْ أَسْلَمَ مَعِيَ مِنْ قَوْمِ وَرَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ بِخَيْبَرِ 
He says, then I came to the Prophet ﷺ with those people who had accepted Islam from my people. And the Prophet ﷺ was at the place of Khaybar. He says, I arrived in Medina with 70 or 80, that's like 70, 80, 70 plus, not individuals, 70 plus baytam min dosin. 70 plus families from the tribe of Dos. 70 plus families. And these are Arabian families of 1400 years ago. <laughs> right? To comment on something I saw on Twitter, you know, every, mashallah, every brother's got a couple of wives, mashallah, and probably got anywhere from 10, 15, 20 kids, Allahu alam. So when we talk about it, like when we estimate families in the community, we, we say an average of about three people per family, we're, we're averaging about 13 people per family there. So if he says 70 plus families, you multiply that by 10, he's talking about 700 people. Okay, let's do a more conservative estimate. 500 people? Allahu alam wali, Allah knows. But can you imagine that sight? The same man who showed up impatiently after a couple of days with three, two people, him including his three, including him as three, him and two people, is showing up after eight years with 500 people. 500 people accepting Islam. 500 people being saved from the fire of hell. 500 people to recognize Allah. 500 people to live their life according to Islam. Imagine the khair, imagine the good. So he says he came and فَلَحِقْنَا بِرَسُولَ اللَّهِ بِخَيْبَرِ And then we joined the Prophet ﷺ at the place of Khaybar. And he says, I stayed with the Prophet ﷺ in Medina حَتَّى إِذَا فَتَحَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ مَكَّةً Until the Prophet ﷺ, Allah gave the Prophet ﷺ victory over Mecca. قُلْتُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ I said, O Messenger of Allah, send me, because you gotta remember he's still to fail, right? He still is who he is. I mean, he was patient for the sake of his people because the Prophet told him to. So he says, O Messenger of Allah, send me to such and such people, this tribe, Dhil uh, Kafain. And they, Dhil Kafain was an idol that some of the, that a tribe basically used to worship. He goes, send me there so that I can destroy that idol. He says, the Prophet, it was Fatu Makkah, it was the conquest of Makkah. So he says, the Prophet ﷺ sent me there. He said, go ahead, fine, you get that job. There's this big idol over here. Now that Islam has been established, you are free to go and destroy that idol. Like, you know, like kind of saying like, hey, listen, if we're gonna break this down anyways, you mind if I do it? I've been holding it in for eight years. Right? I'd like to kind of wreak some havoc. And so he, the Prophet said, go, go ahead. He said, فَجَعَلَ التُّفَيْلِ وَهُوَ يُوقِدُ عَلَيْهِ النَّارِ يَقُولُ يَا ذَا الْكَفَيْنِ لَسْتُ مِنْ عُبَّادِكَ مِلَادُنَا أَقْدَمُ مِنْ مِلَادِكَ إِنِّي حَشَوْتُ النَّارَ فِي فُؤَادِكَ He says that, O Dhul Kafain, like the idol, he says that you are not to be worshipped, that um, what we worship is much older than what you worship, and then he says that, that I have put fire inside of your mouth. Like I am burning you from the inside out. And so he basically talks about this. He says, I came back to the city of Medina and I stayed with the Prophet ﷺ until he passed away. 
He says that, and then the narration goes on to talk about how after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, when many of the tribes, the Bedouin tribes, they began to apostate and leave Islam. He was amongst the people who went out there to basically deal with that situation. And he had a son at this point as well, and his son was with him as well. And he says he saw a dream at this point. And the dream was very interesting. He says that what he saw in the dream was that his head had been shaved. In his dream, he saw that his head had been shaved. And he says that a bird came out from his mouth. And then he says that he was entered back into the womb of a woman. This is the dream that he saw. And he said that his son is there in his dream and he's trying to reach out to his son, but he can't reach his son. His son is reaching out to him, he's reaching out to his son, but they can't reach each other. He says later on, he talks about his death. And he says that the interpretation of that dream was realized at the time that I was dying. He says that I, in the battle, he was injured. And the head being shaved was the sign of the fact that I would receive a fatal wound. The bird being released from my mouth was a sign of the fact that my soul would depart from my body. And being entered into the womb of the mother was a sign of me being returned back into the earth, like me being buried into the ground. And the fact that his son is reaching out to him and he's reaching out to his son, but they can't reach each other, is an indication of the fact that my son, he says my son was also, his son rather, excuse me, third party, his son was also injured in that battle, but his son actually recovered and died in a later battle as a shaheed. So that was a little bit of a dream that he saw. But one of the lessons that we take from that is, the same man, great intellectual of his people, leader of his people, who decades, two decades ago, had arrived in the city of Mecca, accepted Islam at the hands of the Prophet ﷺ, listened to the Qur'an, objectively listened to the message of the Prophet ﷺ and the Qur'an, the Book of Allah, accepts Islam, learns from the Prophet ﷺ, goes back to his people, is taught a very profound lesson in iman and faith and how to teach and preach the message is a means of hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people entering into Islam, accepting Islam, so much khair, then has the blessing of saying in the company of the Prophet ﷺ for the last few years of the Prophet ﷺ's life to be close to the Prophet ﷺ like that. It's a huge blessing. And then finally, the blessings just didn't end there. Finally, he dies in the battlefield as a martyr, as a shaheed. He receives the dignified death of a shaheed. His son receives the dignified death of a shaheed. And this is a story of Tufail Ad-Dawsi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And this was one of those. So even though we talked about his entire life, extending all the way to his death, which is obviously much later on in the seerah, even beyond the life of the Prophet ﷺ, but this was a small victory for the Prophet ﷺ, or rather a huge victory, it's rather how you look at it, but this was a huge victory for the Prophet ﷺ to be able to 
receive that, that peace and tranquility from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that a man accepts Islam, not just any ordinary man, but a leader of his people, and a very inte- intelligent, educated man, that would later on go on to become the means of his whole tribe accepting Islam. And this happened at that very crucial, critical moment, in between these great moments of difficulty and adversity. Three years of isolation, and boycott in the valley of Abu Talib, and then on the other side would be two of the greatest personal tragedies of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the death of his uncle and the death of his beloved wife of 25 years, Khadija radiallahu anha, which inshallah we'll work our way towards talking about in the following weeks. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all uh, the ability to practice everything that's been said and heard. Again, let's try to remember and hold on to the lessons. Dawah is a responsibility and obligation. But a few things to remember about da'wah. Number one, our primary vehicle and means and inspiration and mode of da'wah is the book of Allah, is the Qur'an. And that is actually the prophetic methodology of preaching and teaching Islam. Number two, gentleness, kindness, mercy, benevolence, patience is the prophetic mode of inviting people to Islam. Nurturing and developing and cultivating iman, faith, within the hearts of men, the hearts of people. That is a prophetic method of da'wah. And that is what the Prophet ﷺ taught his people. There might be some, number three, there might be some of us, who maybe our natural disposition, our own intellectual capacity, makes it very difficult for us to do that. But that's not a good enough of an issue. Oh, I can't deal with that. I can't do that. No, no, no. That's the way it's done. That's the way it's done. We have to deal with that. To, 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 to quote a common like, you know, English saying, a figure of speech, we have to learn to get over ourselves. Nobody cares how intelligent or how educated or how intellectual we are. This is an amana, this is a trust, this is the deen of Allah. And nobody was more intelligent and more eloquent and more educated and more enlightened than Muhammad Rasulullah But he was extremely humble. He was very humble and patient and loving and kind and benevolent and generous and gentle with the people when preaching to them. He was patient, forbearing. And we have to learn to cultivate those qualities. Look back at how, would the, how did the Prophet ﷺ do da'wah? How did he handle the teaching and the preaching of the message? And that needs to be our primary mode of teaching and sharing Islam with people. May Allah give us the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nasafiru wa natubu ilayk. 